Chapter Twenty Seven of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Luna. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Twenty Seven. The Missing Marian. In the meantime, how had the morning broken upon Del Delight? How upon Lucky now, and how at Oldfield Cottage? At Del Delight, the old man had expired just before the sun arose. The two physicians that had been summoned the night previous, but had been delayed by the storm, arrived in the morning only to see the patient die. Many inquiries were made, and much conjecture formed as to the cause of Thurston Wilcoxon's improper and unaccountable absence at such a juncture. But Melchizedek, poor faithful fellow, having followed his master's steps, did not appear, and no one else upon the premises could give any explanation relative to the movements of their young master. He had left the bedside of his dying relative at nine o'clock the night before, and he had not since returned. His saddle-horse was gone from the stable. That was all that could be ascertained. Dr. Brightwell took his departure to answer other pressing calls, but Dr. Wiseman, seeing that there was no responsible person in charge, and having elsewhere no urgent demands upon his time and attention, kindly volunteered to stay and superintend affairs at Delta Light until the reappearance of the young master. At Oldfield Cottage Edith had sat up late the night before, waiting for Marian, but seeing that she did not return, had taken it for granted that she had remained all night with Miss Thornton, and so, without the least uneasiness at her prolonged absence, had retired to rest. And in the morning she arose with the same impression on her mind, gaily looking forward to Marian's return with the visitor, and the certain happy revelation she had promised. She had breakfast over early, made the room very tidy, dressed Miriam in her holiday clothes, put her own Sunday gown, and sat down to wait for Marian and the visitor. The morning passed slowly, in momentary expectation of an arrival. It was nearly eleven o'clock when she looked up, and saw Colonel Thornston's carriage approaching the cottage. There! I said so. I knew Marian had remained with Miss Thornton, and that they would bring her home this morning. I suppose Colonel Thornton and his sister are both with her. And now for the revelation. I wonder what it is," said Edith, smiling to herself as she arose and stroked down her dress and smoothed her ringlets preparatory to meeting her guests. By this time the carriage had drawn up before the cottage-gate. Edith went out just in time to see the door opened and Miss Thornton alight. The lady was alone. That Edith saw at the first glance. "'What can be the meaning of this?' she asked herself, as she went forward to welcome her visitor. But Miss Thornton was very pale and tremulous, and she acted altogether strangely. "'How do you do, Miss Thornton?' "'I am very glad to see you,' said Edith, cordially offering her hand. But the lady seized it and drew her forcibly towards the door, saying in a husky voice, "'Come in, come in!' Full of surprise, Edith followed her. "'Sit down,' she continued, sinking into a chair and pointing to a vacant one by her side. Edith took the seat and waited in wonder for her further speech. "'Where is Marian?' asked Miss Thornton, in an agitated voice. "'Where?' "'I believed her to be at your house,' answered Edith, in surprise and vague fear. "'Good heaven!' exclaimed the lady, growing very pale and trembling in every limb. 
Edith started up in alarm. "'Miss Thornton, what do you mean? For mercy's sake, tell me, has anything happened?' "'I do not know. I am not sure. I trust not. Tell me, when did you see her last? When did she leave home? This morning?' "'No. Last evening, about sundown.' "'And she has not returned? You have not seen her since?' "'No. Did she tell you where she was going?' "'No. Did she promise to come back, and when?' She promised to return before dark. She did not do so. I judged the storm had detained her, and that she was with you, and I felt easy. "'Oh, God!' cried the lady in a voice of deep distress. "'Miss Thornton, for heaven's sake, tell me what has occurred. Oh, Edith! In mercy explain yourself. Marian, what of Marian? Oh, God, sustain you, Edith. What can I say to you? My own heart is lacerated.' Marian, Marian, oh, what has happened to Marian? Oh, where is Marian? I had hoped to find her here, after all, else I had not found courage to come. Miss Thornton, this is cruel. Ah, oh, poor Edith, what you require to be told is far more cruel. Oh, Edith, pray heaven for fortitude. I have fortitude for anything but suspense. Oh, heaven, Miss Thornton, relieve the suspense, or I shall suffocate. Edith, Edith, said the lady, going up and putting her arms around the fragile form of the young widow, as to shield and support her. Oh, Edith, I heard a report this morning, and it may be but a report. I pray heaven that it is no more. Oh, go on. What was it? That, that last night, on the beach during the storm, Marion Mayfield— Miss Thornston's voice choked. "'Oh, speak, for mercy, speak! What if Marian—' "'That Marian Mayfield had been waylaid, and—murdered! Oh, God!' cried Edith, as her overstrained nerves relaxed, and she sank in the arms of Miss Thornton. A child's wild, frenzied shriek resounded through the house. It was the voice of Miriam. At Lucknow that morning the remains of the unfortunate Dr. Grimshaw were laid out preparatory to burial. Jacquelina, in a bewildered stupor of remorse, wandered vaguely from room to room, seeking rest and finding none. I have caused a fellow creature's death. That was the envenomed thought that corroded her heart's centre. From her bosom, too, peace had fled. It was near noon when the news of Marian's fate reached Lucknow and overwhelmed the family with consternation and grief. But Jacquelina, the effect of the tragic tale on her was nearly fatal. She understood the catastrophe as no one else could. She knew who struck the fatal blow, and when and why, and under what mistake it was struck. She felt that another crime, another death, lay heavy on her soul. It was too much, oh, it was too much. No human heart nor brain could sustain the crushing burden and the poor lost elf fell into convulsions that threatened soon to terminate in death. There was no raving, no talking. In all her frenzy the fatal secret weighing on her bosom did not then transpire. Before the day was out the whole county was in an uproar. Never had any event of the neighbourhood created so high an excitement or so profound a sympathy. Great horror and amazement filled every bosom. 
a county meeting spontaneously convened, and handbills were printed, large rewards offered, and every means taken to secure the discovery of the criminal. In the deep, absorbing sympathy for Marian's fate, the sudden death of Professor Grimshaw, and the reasonably to be expected amease of old Mr. Cloudsley Wilcoxon, passed nearly unnoticed, and were soon forgotten. Among the most zealous in the pursuit of the unknown murderer was Thurston Wilcoxon, but the ghastly pallor of his countenance, the wildness of his eyes, and the distraction of his manner, often varied by fits of deep and sullen despair, excited the surprise and conjecture of all who looked upon him. Days passed, and still no light was thrown upon the mystery. About a fortnight after the catastrophe, however, information was brought to the neighbourhood that the corpse of a woman, answering to the description of Marian, had been washed ashore some miles down the coast but had been interred by the fishermen the day after its discovery. Many gentlemen hurried down to the spot, and further investigation confirmed the general opinion that the body was that of the martyred girl. Three weeks after this, Edith lay upon her deathbed. Her delicate frame never recovered this last great shock. A few days before her death, she called Miriam to her bedside. The child approached. She was sadly altered within the last few weeks. Incessant weeping had dimmed her splendid eyes, and paled her brilliant cheeks. "'Sit down upon the bed by me, my daughter,' said Edith. The child climbed up and took the indicated seat. Something of that long, smooth-earth fire, which had once braved the fury of the British soldiers, kindled in the dying woman's eyes. "'Miriam, you are nearly nine years old in time.' and much older than that in thought and feeling. Miriam, your mother has not many days to live, but in dying she leaves you a sacred trust to be fulfilled. My child, do you follow and understand me? Yes, mamma. Do not weep. Tears are vain and idle. There was an injured queen once, whose tears were turned to sparks of fire. So I would have yours to turn. She came among us a young stranger girl, without fortune or position, or any of the usual stepping-stones to social consideration. Yet see what influence, what power she soon obtained, and what reforms and improvements she soon effected. The county is rich in the monuments of her young wisdom and angelic goodness. All are indebted to her, but none so deeply as you and I. All are bound to seek out and punish her destroyer, but none so strongly as you and I. Others have pursued the search for the murderer with great zeal for a while. We must make that search the one great object of our lives. Upon us devolve the right and the duty to avenge her death by bringing the destroyer to the scaffold. Miriam, do you hear? Do you hear and understand me? Yes, mamma, yes. Child, listen to me. I have a clue to Marian's murderer. Miriam started and attended breathlessly. My love, it was no poor waterman or fugitive negro, tempted by want or cupidity. It was a gentleman, Miriam. A gentleman? Yes, one that she must have become acquainted with during her visit to Washington three years ago. Oh, I remember her unaccountable distress in the month that followed that visit. His name, or his assumed name, was, attend, Miriam, Thomas Truman. Thomas Truman? Yes, and while you live, remember that name 
until its owner hangs upon the gallows. Miriam shuddered, and hid her pale face in her hands. Here, said Edith, taking a small packet of letters from under the pillow. Here, Miriam, is a portion of her correspondence with this man, Thomas Truman. I found it in the secret door of her bureau. There are several notes entreating her to give him a meeting, on the beach at Mossy Dell, and at other points. From the tenor of these notes, I am led to believe that she refused these meetings, and more than that, from the style of one in particular, I am induced to suppose that she might have been privately married to that man. Why he should have enticed her to that spot to destroy her life, I do not know. But this at least I know, that our dearest Marian has been basely assassinated. I see reason to suppose the assassin to have been her lover or her husband, and that his real or assumed name was Thomas Truman. These facts, and this little packet of notes and letters, are all that I have to offer as testimony. But by following a slight clue, we are sometimes led to great discoveries. Why didn't you show them to the gentlemen, dear mamma? They might have found out something by them. I showed them to Thurston Wilcoxon, who has been so energetic in the pursuit of the unknown murderer. But Thurston became so violently agitated that I thought he must have fallen and he wished very much to retain those letters, but I would not permit them to be carried out of my sight. When he became calmer, however, he assured me that there could be no possible connection between the writer of these notes and the murderer of the unfortunate girl. I, however, think differently. I think there is a connection, and even an identity, and I think this packet may be the means of bringing the criminal to justice, and I leave it, a sacred trust, in your charge, Miriam. Guard it well, guard it as your only treasure, until it has served its destined purpose. And now, Miriam, do you know the nature of a vow? Yes, mamma. Do you understand its solemnity, its obligation, its inviolability? I think I do, mamma. Do you know that in the performance of your vow, if necessary, no toil, no privation, no suffering of mind or body, no dearest interest of your life, no strongest affection of your soul, but must be sacrificed. Do you comprehend all this? Yes, mamma, I knew it before, and I have read of Jephthah and his daughter. Now, Miriam, kneel down, fold your hands and give them to me between my own. Look into my eyes. I want you to make a vow to God and to your dying mother, to avenge the death of Marian. Will you bind your soul by such an obligation? The child was magnetized by the thrilling eyes that gazed deep into her own. She answered, Yes, mamma. You vow, in the sight of God and all his holy angels, that, as you hope for salvation, you will devote your life with all your faculties of mind and body to the discovery and punishment of Marian's murderer, and also that you will live a maiden until you become an avenger. I vow. Sway that no afterthought shall tempt you to falter, that happen what may in the changing years, you will not hesitate, that though your interests and affection should intervene, you will not suffer them to retard you in your purpose, that no effort, no sacrifice, no privation, no suffering of mind or body shall be spared, if needful, to the accomplishment of your vow. I swear, you will do it. You are certain to discover the murderer and clear up the mystery. The mental excitement that had carried Edith through this scene subsided and left her very weak. 
so that when Thurston Wilcoxon soon after called to see her, she was unable to receive him. The next morning, however, Thurston repeated his visit, and was brought to the bedside of the invalid. Thurston was frightfully changed. The suffering of the last month seemed to have made him old. His countenance was worn, his voice hollow, and his manner abstracted and uncertain. "'Edith,' he asked as he took the chair near her head, "'do you feel stronger this morning?' "'Yes, I always do in the forenoon. "'Do you feel well enough to talk of Miriam and her future?' "'Oh, yes. "'What do you propose to do with her?' "'I shall leave her to Aunt Henrietta. "'She will never let the child want.' But Mrs. War is quite an old lady now. Jacqueline is insane, the Commodore and Mrs. Lazul scarcely competent to take care of themselves, and lucky now a sad, unpromising home for a little girl. I know it, oh, I know it. Why you speak of it, since I can do no otherwise? To point out how you may do otherwise, dear Edith, it would have been cruel to mention it else. She looked up to him with surprise and inquiry. Edith, you have known me from my boyhood. You know what I am. Will you leave your orphan daughter to me? You look at me in wonder, but listen, dear Edith, and then decide. Marian, dear Margaret Saint, loved that child as her own, and I loved Marian, loved her as I had never dreamed it possible for her to love. I cannot speak of this. It deprives me of reason he said, suddenly covering his eyes with his hands, while a spasm agitated his worn face. In a few minutes he resumed. Look at me, Edith. The death of Marian has brought me to what you see. My youth has melted away like a morning mist. I have not an object in life, except to carry out purposes which were dear to her benevolent heart, and which her sudden death has left incomplete. I have not an affection in the world except that which comes through her. I should love this child dearly, and cherish her devotedly for Marian's sake. I shall never change my bachelor life, but I should like to legally adopt little Miriam. I should give her the best educational advantages, and make her the co-heir with my young brother, Paul Douglas, of all I possess. Say, Edith, can you trust your child to me? He spoke earnestly, fervently, taking her hand and pressing it, and gazing pleadingly into her eyes. So you loved Marian. I even judged so when I saw you labour hardest of all for the apprehension of the criminal. Oh, many loved her as much as you. Colonel Thornton, Dr. Wiseman, Judge Gordon, Mr. Barnwell, all adored her. Ah, oh, she was worthy of it. No more of that, dear Edith. It will overcome us both. But tell me if you will give me your little girl. Dear Thurston, your proposal is as strange and unusual as it is generous. I thank you most sincerely, but you must give me time to look at it and think of it. You are sincere. You are in earnest. You mean all you say. I see that in your face, but I must reflect and take counsel upon such an important step. Go now, dear Thurston, and return to me at this hour to-morrow morning. Thurston pressed her hand and departed. The same day Edith had a visit from Mrs. Waugh, Miss Thornton, and other friends, and after consulting with them upon the proposal that had been made her, she decided to leave Miriam in the joint guardianship of Mrs. Waugh and Thurston Wilcoxon. And this decision was made known to Thurston when he called the next morning. A few days after this, 
Edith passed to the world of spirits, and Thurston took the orphan girl to his own heart and home. End of chapter 27 The Missing Marion Recording by Sandra Luna